When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Matt Delia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia, and this is a guest episode. This is not a solo episode. I have a guest. Uh, I haven't had guests very much uh, recently, but um, every once in a while I do, and every once in a while I will, and I'm excited about this guest. This uh, is, his name is John Sternfeld. Uh, he wrote a book called Unprepared. Unprepared is uh, about how we, we were unprepared. Uh, the full title is Unprepared America in the Time of Coronavirus, and it is about how we were unprepared for that. And I read the book. Uh, it's what is most interesting about it, and John and I talk about this, and uh, I'm going to make this short so we can get right into the, my conversation with John, which was fantastic, but uh, it's it's... It is basically a compilation of, in chronological order, from the very first uh, moment that this was written about anywhere or any uh, spoken about anywhere. I think the very first uh, part of the book is actually uh, a WeChat message sent from China, uh, and it, it it tracks sort of like the very beginning of the moment that we became aware of coronavirus its deadly potential its its potential to become a pandemic how that unraveled and then it it proceeds to tell in order uh but again without any commentary at all uh and it quotes politicians and it uh, it actually john and i talk about this but he took away the sort of political affiliation of the politicians so it's really just what people said what doctors said, what politicians said, uh, even uh, even commentary like op-eds, editorialized stuff, none of that is in the book. It's purely our slow developing understanding of what this was, what this could be uh, through the mouths of people who were at the forefront, uh, people in the World Health Organization, the CDC, um, American politicians, John Hopkins University, just everything. And it takes us up through, I believe, uh, early June. Obviously, we are well past that now. But it takes us just past 100,000 deaths uh, in America. And now we, we are actually at almost exactly twice that. I think when the book ends, there were 108,000 dead. Today, there are 217,000 Americans dead from this deadly virus that has created this uh, worldwide upheaval. So before uh, I go on too long, I'm going to stop myself. Uh, John was a great guest, uh, and I believe this was a great episode. Very, very interesting shit, and uh, a lot of shit I didn't know. If you're interested, pick up the book for sure. Um, yeah, it's pretty fucking mind-blowing stuff. Uh, all right, here is my conversation with John Sternfeld about his new book, Unprepared. Hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. John Sternfeld, thank you so much for joining. Matt Delia is confused. I uh, really appreciate it. Your time and your work. Your new book is 
called Unprepared. And uh, before we get into that, I'm curious uh, what just, I mean, uh, it's it goes without saying what, quote, interests you about this. But I'm curious as to how you arrived at being the one who put this thing together. Uh, it's an excellent question. I, I asked myself that question at times. <laughs> um, I, I, there's an editor friend of mine who I've worked with, and he called me up in late March. And uh, he just started chatting with me about these governor briefings, which were, you know, it was baffling to me that people were sitting at home at noon watching their governor briefings. Sure. And I said, yes, that is strange. And he said, well, have you been watching them? And I said, no, because who does that? Right. And uh, he said, you know, watching, he was watching Governor Cuomo here in New York. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I've been watching Trump and Cuomo each day. And it's striking to me, you know, what a, what a, contrast the leadership that is Mm -hmm. and you know every day we have these transcripts from the president and from other governors and what if we started tracking them as like a you know study and leadership in crisis and i said okay well that's kind of interesting it didn't really strike me as a book Mm -hmm. but you know i'm a freelance ghostwriter that's my job Mm -hmm. so i you know i sat down with my wife the next day to watch cuomo uh, and I was struck by him. He was empathetic, and he was funny, and he was direct, and he was offering sort of the opposite of what the president at the time, who was doing those, uh, can we curse on your podcast? Yes, absolutely. I, I do it all the time. Yeah, he was doing these batshit task force briefings at the time, where he had a bunch of scientists behind him, but he wasn't you know, referring to them. Right. And um, anyway, so I watched that for a few days, and I said, yeah, that could be interesting. And basically the book evolved from there. And I realized that I couldn't put a book together just of politicians that I agreed with. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, watching other governors and mayors. And and then I said, well, now we have another problem is that there's so many factual errors in this book. Yeah, right. Uh, because if I just included everybody, uh, you know, including Governor DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas, we would just have a book of, you know, made up shit. <laughs> so, right, right. The idea then was to work day to day through the leader's words and then the actual facts. So we went to the Johns Hopkins tally and we went to journalists and we started to branch out to where I was basically putting together like what happened that day in the public square. Right. And the book evolved from there. And, and you know, I went backwards to China. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the book process, I was writing that day on the day that it was happening. Wow. And it was a really clarifying thing during a time where we were all just bombarded with this fire hose of information. Uh, I got to sat, sit down every day and say, okay, who said what? Mm-hmm. Were they wrong? Were they right? <laughs> what did it lead to? And before we knew it, it was, you know, late May. And we started paring off the book into like uh, the arc, into like a five act structure. Um, and the book is broken into five steps, ending with the reckoning. And right. the reckoning is the protests around George Floyd's death, right? Which was not a separate news story, as far as I was concerned. It right. was the natural evolution of, you know, inequality and frustration and lack of leadership. And uh, so, yeah, that's basically how the book came about. That's interesting. So it was actually. I mean, maybe it's not the exact right phrase, but it seems like uh, what I didn't realize is that it was kind of in real time. You weren't sitting somewhere in May thinking, oh, I want to go back and 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 dig this stuff up. You're really like, as it's happening, sort of unfolding in front of your eyes, you're listening to all of these different people with the purpose of compiling them with an idea that eventually you might release an actual book about it. Exactly. I mean, there was a, it was April. So it was like, let's say, in April when I started. So at first I was doing both. But yeah, by the time we got to late April, I was, you know, structuring January through April. And then I'd be like, all right, what happened today? Yeah. You know, and I would, you know, and then I tried to find, you know, I used journalists, but I tried to stay away from op ed mm-hmm. or politically driven commentary. In the book itself, no elected official has a party designation. Yeah. Next to their name in the book. That's actually one of my which, favorite things about it, to be honest. And 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 it sort of makes a statement up front as to what it is not going to be that you're about to read. Yeah. Exactly. And I always, you know, I guess in the back of my mind, I found it strange that we always do that when yeah. we label, you know, their state and their party. And I did not want this to be a back and forth political book, although just facts are facts. Mm-hmm. So I write in the intro of the book, 
this was an objective effort by me, but this is not a both sides story. Right. Um, and the people that were pushing for early openings, like governor of Georgia are in there, yeah. you know, saying that it's not that I'm anti-Republican. That's yeah. what he was saying. Right. And there are, you know, like you take like mayor de Blasio, New York city, he's got some days where it, you know, he seems like a good leader and then he got some days where he doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. Right. And I tried to be fair like that. I mean, I think Cuomo and uh, Governor Newsom probably come out looking the best because right. they were the earliest and they were on top of it and they never lost sight of the individual horror mm -hmm. that this pandemic has been to people. Um, and I think when you're done with the book, you don't really feel anything about a party. You feel something about individual moments and individual people and i didn't want it to come out as just like a liberal yeah you know book about how poorly the administration did um but i also did it both sides and i did not go looking for like a good republican but right. there were some governors like uh, mike dewine in ohio yeah. and uh governor hogan in maryland republicans who you wouldn't know that they were in the same party as the president because they were just like laser focused on getting their people out of it. So right. that was the idea. I also thought Governor Whitmer sort of came off in a very sort of compassionate and early side uh, honesty sort of way. You know, there's a passage in there where she specifically talks about individuals in her state and the unemployment claims. And it, it as you read the book, it 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 unfolds in a in an it is surprising, actually. It's surprising how much it unfolds like it a story with without mm. your hand in there. I mean, obviously, there's there's your guiding hand in the compilation aspect. But did you find that uh, it 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 is its own story in a way, even though you're not narrativizing it in particular? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I mean, the the structure sort of came out of the material itself. I mean, not to sound all lame and writerly, but sure. it like organically showed up. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer was holding briefings before there was a single case in Michigan. Yeah. So that just reveals the kind of leader she was. Mm -hmm. And what happened over time is if I found um if I found that the story could be served by going back and dropping something in March that led to May, I did that. Right. But it really told the story did tell itself. And it was happening like at the speed of my life. Like my life was just like everyone else's during the pandemic. And I would just like record where we were. And it looked like a big mess of stuff. And it took a while, you know, it took most of, of July to call it down, you know, to, to, I wanted it to feel like you were experiencing it again when you read it. That's the idea. When yeah. I tell people the idea of the book, they think it sounds weird, but anybody who has read it fortunately has enjoyed it because it's like a virtual reality simulation yeah. of those six months. Um, and that was the idea behind it. Yeah. And it, it also, it's, it was interesting just from a purely subjective standpoint, my own experience of, cause a lot of the, I was paying close attention, nothing as close as you were watching individual governors and such, but I was struck by how, how I was reminded of my different states of mind all along. Because if <laughs> right. I hear something, if I read something that I remember Trump said or remember Newsom said, because I'm in LA, uh, it it would trigger this memory of either exactly where I was and what I thought, what I was doing, how scared I was, how not scared I was. It, it's almost like a, it, it's holding up a mirror to my own experience of how it all unfolded. And it, it, it's it's interesting to compare all of those moments to where I am now as I read it, if that makes sense. It's, it's, it almost feels like a, a, it spans five years because this period of our life feels right. like for, fucking forever. And it really just, it isn't. I mean, this book starts within a year by a lot. I mean, we're talking like eight months ago, 10 months ago, mm -hmm. really, uh, when everything sort of starts and becomes something that I'm aware of. And yet it just, it feels like this is the, the, the last five, 10 years of my life. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, even when I go back now, I was looking through it just before our call, just to like get my mindset. Mm -hmm. You really like, like we think of like early March and what's interesting is there was this clear mindset of we are on pause, right? Everybody felt we were in this weird pause, right? Yeah. And it was a week and it was two weeks and the kids were home. And then somewhere in there, everybody at their own pace shifted to like, Oh, this is our life now. Yeah. Right. And let go of this idea that we could go back. And then it was like, Oh, we're going to transition into an entirely new society. When right. This is over. 
Yeah. And you feel yourself like everybody had their own moment when they saw that. And you feel the, like, I'm glad you said you felt individually involved because that's the idea. This is not my experience. Right. It was like what the country was hearing and feeling and seeing as it unfolded. And one thing I think that comes through is there's an accountability issue going on with this pandemic. You know, one thing I try to remind people when they talk to me about it, this was not a natural disaster, right? right? This was a man-made problem that the further we get away from the first case, it's obvious that this has been a leadership failure. It's been a social failure, but there were choices along the way that took us there. And the book reveals like, Oh, these were the choices along the way that led us there. I think of, it's not a fair comparison, but the only other oral history I read before I made this mm-hmm. was this 9-11 oral history mm-hmm. by um, Garrett, I think his name is Garrett Graff. And what's amazing about that story is like, there is no collective mm-hmm. of the 9-11 story, right? Everybody was just, you know, every man for himself trying to get out of the building, try to, you know, whatever they were doing. This story is like America as a country was being dragged in these different directions. Yeah. And we find eight months later that is still happening, even though we have all our facts. Yeah. So when I see like an argument about whether or not Fauci was against masks, right. you know, which comes down to like a single comment Fauci made, I think it was in February, yeah. about how, you know, well, right now medical staff do masks. That's basically what he said. Right. It's being used as a propaganda point nine months later. It's beyond frustrating because the numbers are the numbers, you know? Yeah, it's interesting, too, to see, uh, because there's so much of things that Trump said and and Pence and other Republicans, to not only see how they sort of vary, but also to see the uh, attempts uh, at the... Because I think about when I think about Trump, I think a lot about how he just kind of throws things against the wall, says whatever the fuck all the time. Sometimes the thing sticks with his base or with the broader uh, electorate and he runs with that. And and it's interesting to see sort of like the seedlings of his talking points that he still has now and how much they kind of didn't make sense then, how much they don't even more now makes sense. I mean, the thing about the travel ban to China from China rather is, is, is interesting. Cause that, that was his like whole thing. That was how he effectively buttressed us from, from getting the virus. And, you know, the talking about the, the testing is widely available. Anybody who wants a test can get a test. That was a big thing. Meanwhile, there is the, the, just the, the simple numbers of, and it, it's actually it's so interesting to see those side by side because you're talking you hear him say anybody who wants a test can get a test and how we're doing such a great job and then you see the comparisons with I think uh, of South Korea when I think of it and it's just it's not it's it's just it's impossible to even wrap your head around you know I mean if if we're talking about just the the it's so easy to look at the people who handled it the right way. And the people who handled it the wrong way. And it's very cut and dried. And the narrative was just developed early on. And the politicization was developed early on. I mean, even without knowing who's Democrat and who's Republican, you can sort of... I get confused when I think back about when did the politicization of it start in such earnest? That was fucking early. That shit started early with Devin Nunez. And and I think there's maybe the governor of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just... it's, 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 It's It makes... It paints a much clearer picture of how this unbelievable politicization started. And I think that is a source of confusion for me, especially because I think it's just so simple. It's so simple when you look at the places that did it right. And it's so simple when you look at us. And yet the politicization wedge just deeper and deeper and deeper and is still deeper than it's ever been, arguably, right now. Right, because it entrenches itself. I mean, that's the thing is you see it early and it doesn't go away and it plants itself into the conversation. Yeah, Anthony Fauci was just this historically famous scientist who studied the AIDS virus back in February, mm-hmm. right? And he's never really done anything, but he has become this pawn of the right. Right. Um, and then you have people like Dr. Deborah Burks who fairly or not, I think she really blew it. She had a total... Uh, she had the ear of the president and too many times she let him get away with his sort of anti-science, anti-history. And by the time she spoke up, I mean, the book doesn't go to August, but it was far too late, right? Because these things were buried into the dirt 
from what's grown out of it. And part of it is Trump's character. This is a guy who takes advantage of the information vacuum in the sense that he can lie about testing and he know there's no centralized place that could argue, right? right? If you just hear that testing is available and it's even if it's not available in your town, you say, okay, well, maybe my town is, right. is not. Uh, so he takes advantage of this information vacuum. And then, like you said earlier, the way that he and the right-wing apparatus, Fox News and, and Facebook, they constantly echo what he says. So it gets to the point where Trump is quoting a Fox News report that's really just quoting him. Right, right? Right. And they live in this sort of masturbatory cycle where they quote each other, but none of it is factual. And the leaders that got through it uh, all over the world, the only uh, similarity is that they just listened to their scientists. That's yeah. really all it was. There was nothing complicated. Um, and I think history is going to bury this guy. I think history is going to bury Trump in a way that we cannot see right now because it feels like he has such a hold mm-hmm. on a portion of the country. But the failures to, even in October, after contracting it yourself, mm-hmm. to um, campaign against masks, to campaign uh, to open up, um, I think history is going to bury him. And there's always something satisfying, not as a political animal, because I am not one, mm-hmm. in knowing that history will catch up, because the story is baffling. It's yeah. the kind of thing where if they study it in history books, they'll be like, I do not understand how this happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. I, what's interesting when I think, because obviously it's hard not to think about the upcoming election right now. <clears throat> uh, every everything I read about any politician is sort of viewed through that lens, and I can't help it. So when I read this, and there's there are many quotes from many politicians, it it, it I th- when I think of Trump and his electoral chances before any of this happened, this being the pandemic. I think he easily wins. And now I think he, I mean, who knows? Anything can obviously happen, but I think he's going to lose. And if he loses, I don't think there will be any other argument besides this is the reason he lost. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting to read it through that lens. I mean, obviously it hasn't happened yet, but if that does happen, this is like the the, the textbook on how he lost, you know, without, yeah, exactly. without any commentary. It's just... It's just laid out the la- the utter lack of compassion, the, the obviously the lying, but but also his his just inability to change. He obviously bet on his way to his path to victory is acting like this isn't that big of a deal and getting the economy back as soon as possible. But none of that is possible still. And he's he's doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down. And it's all it's in these pages and then past these pages. And it's still going on right now. It's hard yeah, to it's fucking baffling. believe. Yeah, what's baffling is that obviously a successful um, resistance against this pandemic would have helped him electorally. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the even if I was a Republican strategist, I would just say, well, the less people that are dying each day in this country that you run, uh, that helps your approval rating. Right. It's a simple equation. Um, but he, I think that he commits himself to a story, like you said earlier. And he rides that story out, and it's almost pathological. I know I don't know how much you know about Trump's background, but you know he was um, he had this lawyer named Roy Cohn yeah. who was famous for. So he was for for your listeners if they don't know, Roy Cohn was like Joe McCarthy's lawyer during McCarthyism, and after Joe McCarthy went down, Roy Cohn became this sort of personification of sleazy lawyering, mm-hmm. and he took Trump under his wing and said, "Never ever admit you're wrong." If they have videotape, don't admit you're wrong. If they have numbers. And I think he's internalized that to such a degree that, I mean, you could not write a situation uh, in a, like if you were creating a Greek tragedy, right? To present this president with like a science-based mass disease event. (laughs) And he's still committed to uh, let's pretend everybody's okay. Um, Even when other people gave up, there were undoubtedly some governors who were hedging, who decided to like, peel back the uh the trump rhetoric but a few of them have dove in with him and their people are dying because of it i mean that's just a that's just a one-to-one equation yeah i mean what i think though uh, that's all absolutely correct and very insightful i think though if he early on and not to get too far into the weeds of what he could have done but i i i do think that if he said 
uh, only I am going to know how to do this right. We have to shut down. And I don't know how long we're going to shut down for. But when we do, the economy is going to rely on someone who knows how to get the economy going. And however long it takes, I'm going to rise us from the ashes. And it's going to be about only me. That would have been a, a much smarter thing to do. Because then he would have given himself room. He would have given himself an out. And he would have said, down the path, past the election even possibly, is when you're going to need me most. But he hasn't done that at fucking all, not once, not one time. <laughs> and it was on a platter for him. And I think in retrospect, it's going to seem like it would have been, as you, as you sort of alluded to, it's going to seem like so obvious what he could have done and didn't do instead. And it really, it does come down to this thing of, I am dug in, I chose my path. And, and at a certain point, it's hubris and it's ego to just not be able to say, uh, actually, I'm going to change course. And I think with him, it's he, he feels so attacked personally mm -hmm. that he can't possibly uh, bend to who he perceives to be his enemies who will tear him down at all costs, wh whether they're being honest or dishonest. And I think that he's unwilling to bend to that. And that is really the ultimate tragedy because as – we're talking about the death count now. I mean, the book ends in July, right? And and that the death count was at uh, the book ends in June, actually. Okay, so and the death count was a hundred thousand or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, I think it hit a hundred thousand over late May Memorial Day. So I think on the last day of the book, it's like at one ten, maybe. And now it's um, twice that, right? Yeah, it's literally twice that. That's exactly right. So, what have we seen though? Is in March it was almost forgivable when people were irresponsible, you know sure, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So in my opinion, the first 100,000 deaths, while tragic, are not nearly as tragic as the second 100,000 deaths. Yeah. Because the amount of those that were preventable, right, yeah. once people understood the concept of shutting down and what needed to happen, uh, those are the tragedy. And you could tie them directly towards everything we've been saying about the White House. You know, it's not just Trump as a person. The way the White House has refused to pivot on the story. And like you said, it was a hero story. Yeah. It was a hero story. He could have been the hero. There are plenty of examples. You know, Giuliani on 9 11 is one that comes up the top of my head. Totally. This is not a guy who was well liked, but in the moment, he he stepped forward as a hero. But Trump was in a deny, deny, deny attitude, and he never left it. Yeah. And the tragedy will be how we could have turned around after the first, after we opened too early in uh, late April, early May, mm -hmm. and we saw that opening. If he had just shut it down then even, mm -hmm, yeah. he could have saved things. But um, it's it's enraging. It's enraging as just someone who believes in facts. I mean, I think that the days blend together. It feels like maybe we were hit with a tsunami, but we were not hit with a tsunami. Yeah. We were hit with a disease that every other country in the world was hit with. And we, we I say we, some of us felt that freedom that doing whatever the hell we wanted, not listening to anybody, that is not what freedom is. Freedom is the price you pay for living in a society, yeah, right? It's caring yeah. about community. And hopefully when this is all said and done, I'm almost optimistic that our understanding of what a community means will change. Our understanding of what government can do will change. Yeah. We just have to get out of it first to see that. Yeah, I'm curious, what is your just personal impression of, because I mean, when I think about the anti-mask movement and how sort of like uh, trolly they are and how anti anything anybody on the left says just full stop, uh, I, that, I think that that at least some degree of it would have been there regardless of how Trump was, regardless of who was president. It, I just think that that would have been a piece of the puzzle in some capacity and would have had to have been dealt with one way or the other. But I'm, I, I have to believe at least to my eye that he being the way he has been has obviously emboldened, but made that sort of movement and the beliefs that are under it or inside it so much stronger and have such longer legs. Is that your impression too? I mean, obviously there's there's the argument of well he's the leader so people are going to follow what he says but there's this cultish element of whatever he says i'm going to do and live that way and it's just it, it, how much of that do you think would have not been there had he not been out front doing being the way he was oh no i i agree with you a hundred percent i mean we think about the truthers and the birthers i mean yeah. these 
conspiracy theorists. They exist, right? Alex Jones exists. Right. The problem is, is that the president, the person with the biggest platform, but also the person that everybody, or not everybody, a lot of people depend on for their job and their power, mm-hmm. have to listen to him. Yeah. So absolutely, by that's why they call him the conspiracy theorist in chief, right? Because he is essentially the far, far fringe uh, in the center of power, right? And yeah. any kind of metaphor you use, he has taken those people to the center. Like you said, he's turned everything into a contentious fight with the yeah. left. Right. So if Rachel Maddow recommends a mask, forget it. Yeah. Fuck it. Masks like it. Once that happened and you're right, it happened so early. Yeah, it happened so early. And I think it happened the second the stock market tanked. In right. my opinion, Trump was the head of that train. When the stock market tanked, he saw his quote unquote approval. Right. He understands numbers. He's always talking about ratings and poll numbers. So once the stock market tanked, he said, okay, I have to keep the economy open. And that became his play. And he had to make everything that was science, whether it was Fauci, whether it was, you know, uh, certain governors like Governor Inslee, he was picking a fight with Governor Inslee in Washington. He picked that fight on March 6th, right? That was March 6th that he was picking that fight. This is when there were a handful of cases in the country. So to him, uh, there is no argument if he doesn't have someone to put on the other side. You know, it's a, it's his understanding of the way the world works. Uh, it goes back to his game show. It goes back to his business sense. It goes back to his personality. So when you have the person in power, believing the most far out fringes, what it does is it's like a paradigm shift of the whole world where people come into the center who never should have been in the center. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are just talking about masks and distancing are seen as, I don't know what we're seen as like, left-wing nuts um and i have to admit you know since the book comes out came out you know i'm now a target like people get on me on facebook you know i'm very out there on facebook and twitter and they come to me and they they're just so venomously mad at even the idea of this book And, and i try to engage with them and i say look the book is just a collection of what people said um but their argument is like the very idea that i would that i would put data on there to show that masks are effective that's it you know, and I get these, you know, they send me like these PowerPoints about how masks don't work. And it's mm. crazy. And I said, wow, this would normally be, you know, 1% of the country. And yeah. unfortunately, it's like 20, it's like 25. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting. I'm actually, if you don't mind, if we could talk about that a little bit, that the, the sure. pushback from people who disagree, which I'm assuming pe- these are people, at least for the most part, that haven't even looked at the contents of your book. They just take you for someone who is just the title unprepared. If you're saying we were unprepared, that's going to imply some kind of criticism. Uh, What, I mean, I can imagine what the vibe is from these people to you, but what and how sort of, how does that come? What does it look like when they come after you? What is that like? It's angry right off the bat. And clearly they haven't read it, right? Right. They're not like arguing. They they see the cover, right? The cover is a a discarded mask on like pavement, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And they see that the the title is unprepared and they immediately see a hit job on their president. And they immediately see a hit job on their way of life. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me how venomous they are at me from the start yeah and i think it's because like you just said trump has created a dichotomy like oh you're with me or against me thing. right so the second i'm putting a book out with that title that's it i am the enemy that's yeah. and if you were an alien you would almost be impressed with president trump's ability to turn those who disagree with him into like an enemy right he's done it with the media obviously he's done it with scientists it's almost impressive in its sort of supervillain quality, right? Its yeah. ability to transform. Um, I know that conspiracy theorists are out there, obviously. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, the president is rewarding and bringing them into the White House and inflaming them with this sort of, it's the same thing with his racism, yeah. right? They feel empowered. They feel empowered in a way they never would have before. And in their mind, their guy is under attack. The virus itself is an attack against him. Right. And it's scary. Like, I think psychologists will actually study, you know, the mass delusion phenomenon that has happened. Right? Yeah, There has sure. been this mass delusion, and it's really scary. And like I said, I didn't encounter it in my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. I did not encounter these people at all. And now they're, you know, they, they pop up on the book's Facebook page, and they, they send me tweets, and it's like, 
you know, and it's nowhere near what like high profile people get, sure. but I get this sense that my very existence is like, I am a, I don't know, like, it's like I'm in the Viet Cong or something, yeah. right? <laughs> Just because I'm introducing facts into this scenario. And that is a testament to how much power Trump has after four years yeah. and how angry people are that he is being blamed for it. Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, I actually, I, I just finished reading this really, this it's book called Stalin. It's about Stalin. It's like a cradle to grave, uh, biography, 700 page thing by Robert service. And it's an amazing oh, wow. book and it covers the whole thing. And uh, obviously politically, ideologically, these two men are absolutely nothing alike, but the simple sort of like pulling people who rely on you and need your help or assistance or power or aid in some way, how he, he pulls those people to heal and also villainizes various groups, whether that be whoever the fuck, you know, we know who they are with Trump uh, and with Stalin, it was obviously a different group of people, but it's, it's, it's the same playbook. And I don't think these people, these kinds of these kinds of leaders, are thinking, "I'm going to be like that other despot. I'm going to be like that person." But it's just this weird human thing that some people have, and then the masses, you're bound to get a certain group or demographic that just is going to support you absolutely blindly. It's that cult of personality thing that that became a popular phrase with Stalin. And now it just absolutely applies to Trump. I mean, he said it too as early on as when in, in the earliest phase of his, uh, when he was seeking the Republican nomination, when he talked about, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and and nobody would, would stop supporting me. That was just true. That, yep. that that's that's unbelievable that he was right and so he does have this weird sort of villainous superpower where he's almost like in an animal way aware that whatever he says he's not going to lose that one part of his group i think the problem that he's facing now is that that one part of his group is that's just it's pared down to the bare minimum now and everyone else who was even close to the middle is now just like this is fucking too much you know i mean I, I i don't i don't i don't see how anybody but his most diehard diehards can possibly stick with him and it's been it's sort of i think all of the illusion for anyone else besides that diehard group it has been broken by this and really the contents of your book you know it's just it's this it's this very direct and simple thing that he dug in on and was unwilling to move even one inch on, and now he's reaping the rewards. I guess you could say from that, and it's 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 crazy. Yeah, the Stalin comparison. I mean, that book sounds fascinating. I'd like to read it. The Stalin comparison is apt because Stalin looked around and he said, "Okay, who are my enemies? Mm -hmm. Right? Okay, let me discredit them or put them away, either out of sight or or completely." Um, discredit them. And right. Trump's been laying the groundwork for that. I mean, he has been anti-science. He has been anti-democratic city. He has been anti-media. And all those came to a head where he was able to say, don't trust them. Right? Those are eggheads. They don't understand. You notice early on, Trump was trying to get that, and McConnell actually did it first. They were trying to get this device of like, oh, it's the blue states that are doing poorly. Right. Because the virus, that was like an intentional attempt to uh, turn it into a war right yeah. like i use that word carefully but to turn it into a war mentality where it's like don't gang up on your president or the people in power let's divide this mentally into people in cities right yeah. and people in the country even yeah. though that's anti-science it doesn't make sense the absolute idea is we have to identify our enemies make sure people know them and stick with that trump also i'm positive thinks that people like him because he doesn't back down yeah and he, sure. when he says doesn't back down he uses that in the most general, batshit, juvenile way. Like, don't ever, ever back down. So he doesn't want to change his mind or his plan because he thinks it makes him less likable. Even if he got to the point where he was like, oh my God, this plan is not working, but I will lose so many people because they like that I don't uh, turn around. Yeah, um, That's I, what's frustrating. I, I wish someone was there, I mean, just for the public health crisis side of it. I wish someone was there to say, Look, Mr. President, none of those people are going to not vote for you, but you have an opportunity here to change a lot of people's minds because they're scared out of their fucking minds. 
And you, in those moments, I mean, it's like a, a rally around the flag thing. As you, you brought up mm-hmm. Giuliani. I mean, I was in New York right. on 9-11. And maybe you were oh, too. Wow. Uh, and I, I remember I, he was someone I hated. He was a guy who I hated ideologically, politically. He was, he, he was a villain to me. And then because of the way he handled that, because of the way it was sort of the narrative around America's mayor, it was like, I actually, 100%, I mean, until he started running for president and became a crazy guy, I, I was 100% thinking, well, actually, he's not that bad. He's obviously not that bad. And, and if, there was, if there was a comparable thing, because uh, I think 9-11 is a good comparison, really, uh, although obviously that was a much more violent one-time event and then the fallout thereafter, this is just an ongoing dreadful sort of never-ending nightmare but it is the only comparable thing in my lifetime that i can point to to say nationally we were hit over the fucking head with something and had no idea which way was up moving forward and in that window giuliani was able to i don't want to say trick someone like me but make someone like me who who hated him think well, actually, he's the leader now. We need stability. He's the person. He's the right person to be mayor right now. That didn't happen one time with Trump for me. Right. I, and it, it was just almost like he was attempting to make sure that anybody who could have been convinced just just wasn't going to be. There was no budging. There was no rally around the flag. It was just purely antagonistic to anyone who, who sort of, I mean, you, in your book, actually, this is something I want to talk about. There's some uh, exchanges that he had with reporters. Yeah, and, I was just thinking of that. And exactly, he's right. so antagonistic about them. And the questions, especially in a vacuum, are so innocuous. They're just about, what do you have to say to people that are scared? Oh, that's a nasty question. I think you really shouldn't be asking questions like that. And it's like, what the fuck is he, what is he doing? Like, literally, what is the strategy? And I know a lot of people say there is no strategy, but I don't even know if I think that. I think he does have a strategy. I just think it's un—it's mind-bogglingly terrible. It's mind-bogglingly bad. I think the insecurity plays a part. It's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking of one of the exchanges in the book. It's with Peter Alexander from NBC News. Yeah. Pretty early on just said, the question was literally, what do you have to say to people that are scared? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I was right? thinking. That yeah. was the question. And he said, I say that you're a terrible reporter. Right. And I think that that exchange, which is sort of replicated through the months, reveals that Trump immediately saw a country in peril as an insult to him, right? That right. rather than an opportunity to save, right? Right. And he did not have the capacity to see like even George W. Bush. I mean, it's impossible to put our brains there now, Yeah. but in that first week after nine 11, right. I mean, I was very anti-Bush, Yeah. but he got the same kind of positive credit. I remember that moment where he had the bullhorn. Yeah. On top yeah. Of the, the rubble. I mean, that was a fucking moment yeah. because he said, look, people are scared. They're looking toward me. Peter Alexander served that up. Yeah. He, he did, served yeah. a bullhorn moment up. And Trump immediately, all he saw was his insecurity and his failure. Because in early March, nobody was blaming Trump. Right. Yeah. I mean, nobody really was blaming him. It was like, it was more of a natural disaster in March. Yeah. And it was his opportunity that he failed. And then he continues to fail day after day after day. And this idea of these rallies now, which I've been making a point of calling mass death events. <laughs> like, stop calling them rallies. They are mass death events. <laughs> That's what they are. Yeah. There's a... Uh, sociopathic need for him to go down in this blaze of glory yeah um that is sacrificing an extra thousand 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 lives yeah um and it it upsets me too much to talk about sometimes but watching these mass death events on tv or on twitter and seeing these poor people i don't mean poor economically i just mean these poor people who have given so much to believe in this man who is leading them to their death whether literally or metaphorically, I, I can't even stomach it. Yeah, it's really, 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 uh, really strange. I mean, I actually think even when he got it, even that was an opportunity to just just change it a little bit and get some people either from sympathy or whatever to to sort of relent and say, okay, well, he's already our president. It would be better if we stuck with him. Now that he had it, he has a new perspective. He had a total that was also on a platter. I mean, how many platter moments do you need? Like, yeah. it's like you want to change the fucking story. There's your chance. Just do it. But it's just, it's just, as you said, it's got to be an insecurity 
unwill the unwillingness has to be from stem from the insecurity i i'm actually i'm curious because you were to just get back to the beginning of what we were talking about about the actual writing of the book you were from a, you're not a journalist and you're watching all of these things as they play out and as you alluded to there's there's the reality of out of one person's mouth and then there's the reality out of another person's mouth from one governor to the next up to the president to health officials what is happening just subjectively in your mind and forget about even the book but because you were someone who is not a member of the press and you're because of the project you are watching all of this stuff what is like what is your experience amid all that it's an interesting question, man. I think it was like a really noisy conversation, right? Like, so I didn't really sleep much during the time because my brain was hearing the sort of mass conversation, Yeah. right? I think of Trump, he was talking to Cuomo, and Cuomo was talking to Newsom, and Newsom was, you know, helping mayors, and then the mayors were talking back to Trump. So it was almost like a crowded room. I pictured it sometimes late at night in like a, like a city council meeting, Yeah. you know, of just voices. And the journalist I thought of as in the corner, just sort of, you know, droning on, uh, or the or the John Hopkins tally. They were just sort of droning on, <laughs> putting up the, the good fight, even though they were getting decimated. And then I'm glad you said that I'm not a journalist, and I tried to make a point in the author's note to thank them because right. without them, um, there is no sense of how this thing traveled, of communities that were at risk and what happened to them. I mean, there were a lot of brave journalists, and I don't just mean literally brave, but brave in the sense that day after day, they were going into communities that were forgotten. They were going to factories. They were going to jails. And they deserve credit that every other frontline worker deserves. I mean, yeah. because of this president's branding of them, it's sort of considered very egghead of me to say journalists are brave, but right. they fucking are. Yeah, 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 They are, and they've been dealing with... I mean, I talk about like people getting on me on Twitter. Like They must yeah. deal with nonstop. Yeah, it's true. Uh, angry trumpists because they've been branded the enemy of the people they've been branded as what they do for a living as anti-america um so i give them credit but what i was dealing with i think of was a lot more like a dramatist you know i don't write fiction but mm. you know i have a background in it and i did try to think of it more like a story that was unfolding that had peaks that had like things that came up and then went away and then came back so I sort of went back into my brain to anything I learned in college and mm. uh, drama classes um, and tried to also focus on, like you mentioned, Gretchen Whitmer, who mm. stood out to be Keisha Bottoms, the mayor in Atlanta, yeah. who came in in like the third act of the story and became like a force. Yeah, I mean, this, she was like a badass fucking leader who yeah. was like, I'm not scared of anybody. Yeah. I, she spoke out against, you know, there were a couple of days alluding. She spoke out against that, but she didn't let that become the story. Yeah. Um, I was in awe of her. I thought she was incredible. And then you had people like there was the guy, he was a, he's a Lieutenant governor of Texas. Yeah. He went yeah. on Tucker Carlson twice and he said, look, I'm willing to die so that my grandchildren can live in America. <laughs> And that, to me, showed how deep the pathology goes. This is the second most powerful man in Texas yeah. who says that even protecting himself was antithetical to America. That worried me a lot. I remember that staying in my head as a, like a big flashing warning. Yeah. Yeah, That that it's interesting because that is so true that it is. And I think the reason that it is is because it is so sort of like uh, alarming in a way is because that is an argument you can't really argue with. It's almost like <laughs> you're just so opposed to where my mind is. Unlike Trump, where you're just like, you're saying a wrong thing, you're saying a wrong thing, you keep lying, you keep saying a wrong thing, your attitude sucks. With this guy, it was like, oh, that's just like the end of the argument. That is the end right. of it all. If you, You're literally saying you're willing to die. So you're admitting that it's possible to die. Whereas Trump right. is trying to minimize it. So this guy's out there. Yeah, like if you're anti-life, what do we have to talk about? Yeah, like, how am I right. going to talk to you if you're anti-life? Exactly. Like, yeah, it's amazing. It's what's amazing. even the thing? Yeah. Uh, so so this, the, the, what you have in the book has, is through June. So what, I mean, obviously we're now we're, we're, we're almost at the election. So many months have passed. What, if anything has changed 
what have you because i'm sure you didn't just stop paying attention once you're done with the book you're you're in it now and you're you're paying a deep attention so what if anything has shifted where is your mind now on all this and and so on yeah well yeah like you said the politics you could actually keep politics out of it up to a certain point yeah. in the first half of the year. So now you have politics, which is just total gasoline on everything that we've been talking about in this conversation. Yeah. Um, and I've been following the way that the cycle of what happened in March, April, May is sort of rehappening. Uh-huh. Right. You get into the arguments about masks. You're getting into the arguments about how soon the vaccine will come. We're getting into whether or not cities should be open again. Yeah. Right. This idea that some places are they're good for indoor dining. Right. There's this horrific like oh my god people are not only not learning from their history they are not learning from their springtime right right (laughs) we are anti-history we are anti-science in a way that um a vaccine will not solve so what what what's horrifying to me and you're right i I do obviously keep track and you know if this book sells enough they want to do a second volume so i'm just sort of keeping track and what's amazing to me is the repetition Right, the mm. repetition, the cycling through the exact same arguments, the perpetuating of the same arguments for political gain. Right, yeah. like if this wasn't an election year, what would this look like? Yeah, well, these rallies wouldn't be going on. I know that. Yeah, it's true. Um, and how would that filter down? Right, like if this Supreme Court thing wasn't going on. Right, so if we were in 2019, I try to think about how would it be different. Mm. I think it eventually would have petered out in the sense that Trump would have seen that he had a chance to reboot yeah but as we get closer and closer to november 3rd you know i think of this sort of man lighting himself on fire image like yeah that's sort of what trump is doing he's lighting himself on fire hoping people uh come check it out right <laughs> what's burning <laughs> yeah. um and it, it's intensified in a way that i think you know wh- wherever you fall with joe biden i think by just sort of almost boringly repeating the science and trying to stay out of it he is going to save us psychologically. Uh, however you think of him as a politician, we really just need somebody in a leadership role who is giving advice, making recommendations that aren't counter to his own CDC, who are not like embarrassing his FDA chief. We just need like a boring president. Again. Yeah. That is my honest opinion. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, I think about, I mean, we, we talk a little bit about, um, how history will view the moment we're living in now. And when I think about the Biden candidacy and, and my, you know, I'm no prognosticator and I've been wrong plenty of times and I've learned my lesson, but it, every sign would point now to a Biden victory, possibly a big one, fingers crossed, obviously uh, everybody still has got to do the actual thing and vote, but it seems that way uh, uh, to me. If that happens, and then after we have enough time to sort of, you know, view history and this as history in the rearview mirror, it will be remarkable how easy it was for Joe Biden to win the presidency mm-hmm. because he doesn't really have to do anything. He, he, right. he, for so much of the period, he was literally in his basement as, as, the, as the criticism would go. He was at home. Mm-hmm campaigning from home he didn't have to tire himself out he didn't have to wear out his mind or body he's old that would have that was like a question mark already it was it was going to be a talking point it ended up not really being an issue because he was never in the spotlight because trump was always taking it and as you say setting himself on fire i mean there's stuff about that biden says sprinkled throughout the book but in a normal situation you would think when one presidential candidate wasn't taking so much of the uh, attention and putting it on himself f- in bad ways, normally there would be a, a, a more sort of like even view of the two of them. And and I think part of the reason Trump won in 2016 was because, you know, the media gave him so much free airtime. That's happening now again, too. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's just glaringly terrible for Trump. And I think that with Biden, it's the, the story that the that history will give us is wow, that was so fucking easy for him. You know, like he didn't have to do that much. Yeah, it's true. It reminds me of uh, sort of like you read about Herbert Hoover yeah. uh, going up against FDR. Right. In, uh, let's see, 1932, is that right? I think so. Yeah, so it's like they get handed this just horrible crisis 
and a president that was like willfully not doing anything about it. And FDR was definitely a great man. You know, I'm not, I'm not shitting on FDR, sure, yeah. but a lot of what he did was just like, get these people back to work, <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. secure up the banks. It was like very much like, and he's treated as a fucking hero, yeah. you know, because he was a normal guy <laughs> when the country needed a normal guy. And yeah. it's funny about Biden. Uh, I actually, I gave an early draft of this to a friend of mine. Uh, before the primary was over, and he uh, said, "There's too much. There's too much Biden in here. It's going to look political. Don't put him in." And I just knew Biden was going to win, even when Bernie was like the hot young thing. Uh-huh. It felt to me like when you go through a crisis and you go back to your ex girlfriend. <laughs> I just had this sense that the that the country was going to tire and fall on Biden, and he's in there. I think I put him in on like January 28th. Yeah, just sort of saying very direct, milk toasty stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, that were that the president on January 28th, I mean, I couldn't do the numbers for you, but it, at least, you know, 25% of these deaths wouldn't have happened, if not more. Yeah. If we just sort of had somebody saying, listen to the scientists. Yeah, it's true. Do you think that your belief that it was going to end up, be, the nomination was going to go to Biden had to do with the the very, very, very close attention you were paying to this particular issue? That's a really good question, right? Because I did, I, exactly, the birdie stuff baffled me. Yeah. Um, I don't remember, you know, now I don't want to get caught. I don't remember exactly when birdie dropped out. But I remember thinking, even before I was writing the book, that Biden's going to win because there's too much chaos going on. Yeah. It probably did. I mean, I would normally be following the unraveling of the Democratic primary in a different way than I had been. Right. I was just like pandemic every day, all day. And it sure seemed like we need a normal guy who had been in the White House already. That yeah. to me seemed obvious. But um, I don't know. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. I just had a feeling that for all of Bernie Sanders' positive elements, he was just too much of a wild card. And people just didn't want that, right? It was yeah. like the country's mother had died, and we wanted to go back to the, you know, the old bedroom, and we just wanted to sit there and, and hide under the covers. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I think hindsight twenty twenty too. I, I think that when I – envision a scenario where it the nomination did go to sanders uh i i don't even know what that would look like right now because there would be no return to normal candidate they would be moved forward in a vastly different way in this direction bernie's direction or just ride it out with this fucking crazy guy and and it would there would have been no sort of like tethering to the earth candidate you know and i like bernie quite a bit but i still yeah. think that now and i can't believe i'm saying this but strangely it seems like joe biden actually was the right p- person to to be the candidate in the sense of he's 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 this familiar face that everyone is just so exhausted of the current moment that they just want almost maybe possibly unrealistically go back to a version of life where that that he sort of represents and he's been able to sort of coast with as you say these milk toast things that he says i mean you look at his twitter account and it's like he, it's like the most vague sort of nice kind warm fuzzy sentiments yep. and in a normal <laughs> in a normal election you wouldn't get away with that shit you would get you would get crushed well, we would have had the luxury, you know, we would have had the luxury of safe and healthy people just commenting on personality traits. Right, but like exactly. we're we're in third world territory, right? Yeah. Right? Like the world is burning. Yeah. We're drowning, or you know, whatever your metaphor is. And absolutely we have gotten rid of all that nonsense that stuck to Hillary in twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um we've just decided it does not matter. Yeah. And maybe it should never matter again. Right. Yeah. Right? Because what tipped Trump to the victory were not what you and I have been referring to as, you know, the, the fringe people. Yeah. What tipped them to victory were regular people who yeah. felt like they tried a new Trump. It's sort of the apotheosis of our obsession with celebrity, yeah. right? Like everything about that got Trump elected, I hope puts to bed this idea that in it, that experience is boring or that, you know, you really want someone you want to have a beer with or all that nonsense. Yeah. Right. Like I don't want that kind of person running my small town, yeah. much less my country. And we needed a crisis to be like, Oh my God, we were such fucking idiots yeah. caring about, you know, the way someone walked and talked when really we just needed a brain. Yeah. Right. And like a, a personality 
that wasn't like inflamed with hate. Yeah. Like, that's all we need. <laughs> and so I think the Biden criticisms went away when people saw uh, that their house was on fire yeah. and they were not interested in getting into the old uh, discussions that Americans used to be able to just kick back and BS about. But now, like, you know, we are we are in it. We are in the belly of it. And we just need a normal person to, to lift this off us. Yeah. If nothing else, just a president who we isn't taking every single headline every single day and exhausting our minds. It's like I just any right now, it's like anyone who I don't have to fucking think about every day. <laughs> you know, like that would be great, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, we're coming up on an hour here. I feel like that's a good oh, place wow, to put a pin in it. If there's anything else you want to say about the book or about anything really before we hop off, go for it. No, I mean, I would encourage people to buy it. Uh, it's called Unprepared, America in the Time of Coronavirus. And like I said, it's not a political book. It lays out how the story unfolded. Buy it for a friend or an aunt of yours that, that thinks this is all a hoax and Hopefully that uh, the cooler heads will prevail ultimately on November 3rd. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Now. Yeah. Uh, all right, man. John, I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing the book and for giving us your time. Uh, thanks a lot and best of luck to you, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again. For sure, yeah.